This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the Business Radio studios in New York City, this is the Real Estate Hour. Here is your host, Zach Scheinberg. Welcome to the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Zach Scheinberg, managing partner of Wind Raven, a real estate investment and development company based in New York. Proud graduate of the Wharton School and an adjunct faculty member at the University of Michigan, Ross. The Real Estate Hour is live at noon Eastern every Friday, followed by Behind the Markets at 1. Past shows are available using our on-demand feature. Any questions about the show or for our guests, please email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Or call us at 844-WHARTON. That is 844-942-7866, and we will try to get to answer them during the show. You can also follow Business Radio on Twitter at BizRadio, B-I-Z Radio 132. And you can follow me on my new Twitter handle at Zach Scheinberg, Z-A-C-H-S-H-E-I-N-B-E-R-G. Uh, it's my pleasure today to have on the show two icons of the residential real estate business. John Albino, Managing Director of Development Marketing at Douglas Elliman and Rafael De Niro of the De Niro team at Douglas Elman. We are going to spend some time today talking about ultra-luxury residential condos, which I've worked on from the investment and development sides, and which Rafael and John work on from the development side, marketing, and sales sides, and which I hope to live in one day, because some of these apartments are absolutely magnificent and incredible, and we saw some yesterday that we're going to talk about a little later in the show. So let's get to our two guests. So between the two of you, John and Raphael, you represent effectively the entire life cycle of the luxury residential condo development process from design and development all the way through to marketing and ultimately sales. So, John, let's start with you. Tell sure. us about Douglas Element Development Marketing. What does it do? What's your role? Why do developers hire you? Sh- sure. So um, Douglas Element Development Marketing is a um, market leader uh, in uh, basically representing developers uh, in the sales and marketing process for new developments. And I think what people may not realize is that our process in terms of our involvement with our developer clients um, is a very long-term process. Um, and we are actually often involved from the time the developer is even looking at a site. Uh, because obviously, as part of that process, what they're doing is thinking about what the maximum value for the end product, because that is really sort of how they understand what they can afford to pay for the site. Um, so we're involved from the very inception of what the concept for the a development can would be and then through to actually we we are sort of ostensibly the proxy for the customers during the entire process of planning the development in terms of what the unit mix should be uh how large the apartments should be uh what the amenities should be all of the various criteria of what the product is that we will ultimately be responsible for selling, we're part of the process of creating that. And so, we go ahead. So a developer would oftentimes or all the time will hire Douglas Elman Development Marketing because they want to know, a developer has an idea in their head of what kind of product they think someone will buy, but you're never really sure and it's never really good to go with the opinion of one person, a developer, and you're hired and your team is hired in order to tell the developer, well, this is what the market is demanding right now. Correct. And how to, uh, at the end of the day, going back to my initial point, it's really about maximizing value. So developers, you know, because it is a competitive environment, um, they're competing for sites. And it's really who has the vision for how to maximize the value for that site. Um, And so we are the people that are able to come in and help them understand, help 
shape a vision for a site with them that we know will resonate with buyers. Okay, Raphael, so let's uh, turn to you. Tell us about the De Niro team. Um, when and why did you start your own brokerage team? How does that process work? And what exactly does a residential condo broker do? Sure. So uh, th- I started the team in 2005, um, three people, and then slowly uh, started to grow it over the following three or four years. And uh, we're up to about 10 people now, um, full-time, one admin, and uh, the rest are agents. Um, what was the other question? What does a condo broker do? Well, there's sort of two different types of uh, condo brokers. There's there's resale condo brokers who are representing buyers and individual uh, units, and then there's new development condo brokers. I do both. Um, so I do a lot of what John just talked about uh, in terms of helping developers figure out what the unit mix should be, what the pricing should be, what the overall design should sort of look like. Um, <clears throat> and I th- would just add that most developers have what is sometimes referred to as a reality distortion field. And I view it as my job and John's job to sort of keep them honest uh, and try to keep them as grounded in reality as possible. So in an in, in example of a development project or any development project, when you, typically both of you will be involved at some stage and in multiple stages, uh, how do your roles overlap? What, John, do you do that, Raphael, you don't do? Raphael, what do you do that, John, you don't do? How do you guys work together in the process? At what point do you get involved? How does it work? Sure. I mean, so my role is more, I do not meet with individual uh, buyers to sell apartments. I don't work on individual resales. So my role is really sort of a, a more, I think of more of a macro role in terms of looking at the overall market and overall trends and concepts. Um, and then we sort of, what happens is our, we actually synthesize and kind of synergize together by having real-time kind of data from the actual brokers like a Raphael who are in the marketplace and hearing the second by second of what's going on. And then my role is kind of looking a little bit more overarching um, in terms of big, more kind of big picture concepts for developments. Um, But they're very much, I mean, they're very much hand in hand. So the information that comes from people like Raphael in terms of their interactions um, and their understanding of what's going on in the market it, it they work hand in hand. And so that's actually kind of the beauty of actually how we do things at Douglas Elliman is that we do work together very, very closely. I basically, I have the cell phone number of every major agent at Douglas Elliman memorized because I deal with them all day, every day. And I get a lot of information and a lot of feedback about what's going on. And I try to sort of bring that together and synthesize it into something that's usable for developers. Um, but we are constantly you know, together with meetings and with talking to clients and, um, you know, and these, some of the questions are not, um, there's not necessarily a yes, no, right, wrong answer. So we have a conversation about what makes sense in a particular situation. So this is a question for, for both of you. I don't know if you can actually answer this, but who is Douglas Elliman and does he still work at the company? (laughs) Wow. Douglas Um, Elliman is no longer with us. (laughs) But he does have a Douglas Elliman uh, was a man, and he was actually one of the very first brokers to actually deal with uh, multifamily vertical living product in New York back when it was co-ops. Um, so it, it is the the origins of the company and the pedigree actually do go back uh, well over a hundred years. We had our hundredth anniversary. It was a couple of years ago. 
I actually thought this was going to go in a completely different direction. I thought that this, I should know this, it's a little embarrassing to say. I thought Douglas Elman was a merger of two companies with two people's last names of Douglas and Elman, so it's nice to learn something while I'm sitting here today. Uh, So let's talk a little bit about luxury versus ultra-luxury. So there is definitely a dividing line between what somebody would consider to be a luxury apartment versus an ultra-luxury apartment. So, Raphael, what's the dividing line? How do you you define it? Well, generally, luxury is defined as anything above $4 million in Manhattan, which constitutes roughly the top 10% of the market. Um, Ultra-luxury, different people have different opinions on what that means. For me, it's anywhere from 20 to $30 million and up, which I sort of define as the super-prime market. And so, of the ones that are in the of the, this, the uh, condominium stock in the ultra luxury segment, just take for example New York City for a second. How many units are there that are of that pricing? That are currently on the market. Yeah, we've got about forty five hundred, including pipeline. Uh, in terms of what's on today, it's probably more like seven or eight hundred. If you're talking ultra luxury, mm-hmm. and velocity. I mean, these aren't things that you can just walk into CVS and pick up off the shelf. So is the, velo- the the timing of sales of these things, is it much longer than a typical apartment? Uh, how long do they stay on the market? What, how is the sales cycle or the sales process a little bit different than a normal luxury apartment or just a normal apartment? Well, the main thing is that you have a lot more product to move, um, and it takes much longer than an individual sale to, to, to move through a whole building of product, um, even if you're talking about a boutique building of 25 units. Um, so on average, I think these days it's anywhere from two to four years, depending on the size of the project. Um, and does that apply for new development as well as resales, or is there a that's difference? more that's for new development? For okay. resales, average is about four hundred and fifty days. And what are you seeing now? That's what that's what it is today. Currently in the market, yeah. given yeah, in a healthier time, it would have been more like one hundred and eighty, two hundred. What's what's interesting too about sort of ultra prime like the the super prime and and like penthouse product is often sort of that category is that in new developments they're often sold either at the very beginning of a project um, because there's sort of a level of there's there's kind of the psychology of like people that come in and they they want the thing that either hasn't been on the market or they want to get it before someone else does or they tend to sell sort of at the end of the of the cycle when someone can come in and actually experience the built product. Mm. I mean, again, I'm talking in broad generalizations, but um, it's kind of interesting to people that there's sort of this psychology in the very beginning of a project that like people want to get in and and get the thing that hasn't been available to other people um, because of the rarity and how special it is. So when you talk about ultra luxury, the focus oftentimes is, and part of the reason that, Raphael, you are in New York, and part of the reason Douglas Elliman Development Marketing is based in New York is because there are so many ultra luxury apartments in New York City. But it's not the only city where these type of apartments exist, but there are a lot of cities where it doesn't exist. So what other markets would you consider to be an ultra luxury market where you could get units like this? And has it changed over time? Because if you go back 10 years, there are probably fewer cities than there are now. Yeah. So today I think it's New York, Miami. LA, San Francisco, but even Boston has a luxury market. Um, and you're seeing some other kind of tertiary cities, uh, and as well as Canada, right? So Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver all have luxury markets now too. And London probably would be maybe the other one though. London, Hong Kong. for sure, definitely and Hong Kong would probably be one. London for sure has been a market internationally. Um, they do, I mean, as has been, you know, widely reported in the press, they have definitely seen a slowdown based on some of the things that were instituted in terms of stamp duty, you know, the taxes and those kind of things, those environment. And of course, 
Brexit, I think, has been you know a part of that uncertainty. Um, but that was certain has certainly been a market. London and New York, you know, are often going um, back and forth in terms of international um, uh, buyers. We're gonna just this is the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM Channel One Thirty Two. I'm Zach Scheinberg, live in New York with John Albino and Raphael De Niro of Douglas Elliman, talking about the world's most luxurious apartments, which I want to get into more specifically right now. So, Raphael, your colleague Rob Goldstein yesterday toured John and I around a few apartments that were pretty impressive, um, and I just want to talk about a couple of them right now. So, the first one we went to was at 56 Leonard Street, um, and it was a 3,400 square foot, four bedroom, four bath, four and a half bath, 12,995,000 square foot. Sorry, 12,900. That would have been a big apartment. 12,995,000 dollars, uh, unit 40 West. So. The building had amazing uh, amenities. Uh, the pool was great. Um, the views were amazing. It has an amazing architect in Herzog and Demuron, skyline views. Just in your opinion that you're representing sellers who are selling there, what is good and bad about the building? The only thing that you could sort of um, comment on about the building is really the location. For some people, it's not the ideal Tribeca location or postcard Tribeca location, but in exchange for not being um, in that postcard location, you get much more height, which you wouldn't get in, you know, cobblestone Tribeca, which generally tops out at 70 feet. Um, so in this instance, I think the views make up for maybe an A- minus location. And the architecture is very distinct. I mean, the, the industry, I think, has termed the building the Jenga building, mm-hmm. which I know that Herzog and Demuron does not like. Yep. Does, does that help? Does having distinct architecture like that does that sell units yeah it certainly helped um when you're talking about the initial well not the initial they originally started back before lehman in 08 but uh they shelved the project and then brought it back to life in 2013 and it certainly helped them a lot uh herzog and demuran has a, a pretty strong following throughout the world um pritzker prize winning architects and um it definitely made the building stand out from the crowd of new developments which were starting to pile up at that time and, and I think also you have to think about, too, that for buyers at this level, you know, it's about it's luxury goods, too. It's a brand. And part of that story is that brand. Now, of course, it's um, substance because obviously, I mean, Herzog and Demeron, they're, you know, very significant architects and they create very special environments and buildings. But part of that is also the fact that bringing that kind of a name is just like, you know, why someone pays like X dollars more for a nylon bag with a Prada triangle on it than, you know, a nylon bag from the Gap. So part of that is that story. I mean, it's not, um, I wouldn't, it's not superficial. It it really is based in the substance of the product. Um, but there is that element of the brand and the visibility. And what we also, you know, spend quite a bit of time from the marketing of these buildings is that um, there's, you know, the campaigns involve public relations and, you know, those kinds of stories and, and having those kinds of architects is very important for people. And it is meaningful. And, you know, in a building like that, you sell to significant art collectors and they are also collecting architecture. Right, so that's actually a good point. It's not just about Herzog and Demiard is an amazing design architect. It's about we have to do PR in order to sell this building. So it's a good story that the news media wants to talk about. And there's an artistic element to it. And there are art collectors and there are people who really care about architecture. So it's more multifaceted than just I want to hire a design architect that's going to build a pretty cool, interestingly designed building. 
Right. It is rooted, I mean, of course, in substance, in the substance of the of the product, but it is important to have that brand. Um, that brand is accretive to the overall product. Have, have you guys been in a situation where you think that it didn't help or it hurt to have? Because uh, one of the downsides, I guess, of working with a very well-known Pritzker Prize-winning architect is that they have very strong design sense and they have very strong opinions about what they want a building to look like, which can oftentimes make the process of developing a building somewhat challenging. But have you been in a situation, and you don't have to name who the person is, but feel free to if you would like, where it you found that the involvement of an architect like that hurt the process more than helped it? I mean, to be honest with you, part of our job is to make sure that when we have um, any kind of creative talent like that that is involved with a project, that it is always accretive to the project, um, and to build that relationship. Um, there's certainly... I think there can be instances where there may be a mismatch between the concept of an architect and who they are and what their style is to a particular location. Um, to I'm a little hesitant to be specific about particular buildings, but I think you can see sometimes um, in the marketplace that there are buildings that don't resonate and, and frankly don't convert sales as readily and in part... I think it it may not be as much the um, the actual execution of the architect, but maybe even the selection of the architect to begin with, with the idea of a particular style for a particular location. Um, and certainly on the flip side to that, if you look at the Robert A. M. Stern collection of buildings throughout Manhattan, um, you know they're 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 crowd pleasers. They're beautiful buildings. They're a neoclassical style, you know, neo style that that works and that resonates in many many different locations, uptown and downtown, from 15 CPW to 70 Vestry. Raphael, what happened to the Anish Kapoor sculpture? <laughs> That's a really good question. <laughs> we're all we're all wondering. Can you it, describe what it is for listeners? It is a. Uh, I, I think it's like. 15 feet tall. Um, it's a, a very large, um, abstract-looking sort of sculpture. It's beautiful if you like Anish Kapoor, um, and it should be arriving at some point soon. Um, I don't know. John, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't. I mean, as far as I know, I mean, the the concept is to have it in place. I mean, obviously, with development, sometimes it takes a period of time to actually get them finished. Um, but I, I I haven't heard the latest on on what that stands. It certainly was a, a significant part of going back to the kind of the brand story. It was this combination, you know, it was Herzog and Demeron, and then having an Anish Kapoor sculpture was certainly a part of what was in, what made that a very interesting and different, unique kind of a story. So um, I, I'm sure it's just, I guess, a question of timing. So let's talk about 30 Sullivan. So that was the second building that we saw. And John, you and I disagreed a little bit yesterday on which of the units we saw we would most prefer to live in. You preferred the views of 56 Leonard, and I prefer 30 Sullivan, which is 6,500 square feet, which was much bigger because I need more space. Because I grew up in the suburbs, so I'm used to it. Five bedrooms, seven bathrooms, four floors, plus a finished basement and a rooftop deck for 12.5, a cool 12.5 million. So what I liked about it is that it feels like a suburban house, which is how I grew up and which is what I'm used to. Uh, the outdoor deck upstairs was was beautiful. Um, so, Raphael, talk, talk a little bit about what you like about it, what you don't like about it, what its challenges are, and what the selling points are. Sure. Um, to me, you know... Those particular properties are sort of a hybrid of a masonette 
which is usually a sort of like a townhouse that's carved out of a larger building, which has its own private street access plus access through the main lobby, through a back door. These are kind of hybrids of standalone townhouses and masonettes. So it's kind of an unusual category in that sense. There's only a couple of, couple of other examples of that exact situation that I know of. Um, and I like the fact that you have a certain degree of autonomy when you're in a townhouse. Um, you're not necessarily subject to decisions that your neighbors want to make that you may or may not agree with. Um, and you do still have access in most cases to a larger condo development where there are amenities and services and a doorman. Uh, so in some cases it's the best of both worlds. And where you can see all these units on your website? Yes. Which is? Uh, you can go to the De Niro team at element.com. Okay. Uh, so 290 West Street, that was the third building that we went to see, which is right on the West Side Highway at Canal Street. We saw Penthouse B, and yep. the designation is Penthouse B. I want to talk about it in a second. But it's 2,700 square feet, three bedrooms, three and a half bathrooms. It's a duplex for $9,650,000. So the the windows were great. There was great light. You had amazing views out to the hut to the West Side and the park that goes along West Street as well as the, the Hudson River. Um, so on the Penthouse B, it was not on the top floor. Why is that done, and is it effective in trying to achieve whatever it's trying to achieve? Sure. So it's done on a fairly regular basis. There are usually more more than one penthouse in most new developments. Sometimes there are several. Um, when there is outdoor space and you're towards the top of the building, um, there is a tendency to label them that way. It's good from a marketing perspective. Um, people seem to accept that there can be more than one penthouse. Um, and most developers will opt to do that. Because yeah, I was a little confused yesterday when we went through. Because we did we go up to the top floor first, John? We we did on 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 accident, and I it, think that it, and the keys didn't work. Rob couldn't get into the building. Correct. That's how we knew we were in the wrong place. <laughs> so um, I guess that was good. Um, might have been a different kind of a tour, but um, it was interesting. But I think what's what to Raphael's point. You know, it's you can't just label anything a penthouse. It has to have certain qualities that people would say are reasonable to be a penthouse. So that particular apartment did have significant outdoor space, um, and it did have significant views. So I think that that combination was a larger apartment. It was a duplex. So there were certain things about it that I think made sense as a penthouse. You know, there's there is some uh, real rationale for why you would call it that. For anyone just joining, this is the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm Zach Scheinberg, live in New York with John Albino and Raphael De Niro of Douglas Elliman, talking about luxury residential real estate. So let's, before we get into the next part, uh, Raphael, is there, are there any other units you're selling right now that you are particularly excited about, buildings that people should know about that are from a design perspective or layout perspective or anything that you are excited about now. Sure. We're working on a building called 108 Leonard right now, which is uh, a full city block on Leonard Street between Lafayette and Broadway in Tribeca. Um, it's in McKim, Mead, and White. Um, architectural masterpiece um, by most people's uh, measures. And um, really incredible ceiling heights, incredible amenities, and sort of an irreplaceable building that you could never build again. It would be prohibitively expensive to try to create that type of detail and ornamentation. Um, and for me, that's the most interesting thing that, that we have in the marketplace right now. And I would just like to say, 
I too grew up in the suburbs, um, and, but I guess we must have had different experiences because I'm not trying to recreate my my childhood <laughs> version of that. Um, I actually so going back to our experience of 56 Leonard and views, um, I I am a completely view driven person um, in my experience of how I like to live in New York, I find it incredibly inspiring. I actually, the apartment that I live in now, I literally walked in and it looks right into the actual water of the river from, so you, you just see it from everywhere in the apartment and that was like all I needed to see. There's nothing else really that great about the apartment or the building. But, so I'm totally views driven, which is why I was drawn to the apartment at 56 Leonard. And speaking of projects that that I work on um, and, and actually with, um, um, you know, the, with Steve Wickhoff, um, Raphael and I both work on 111 Murray, which is sort of the the kind of latest and and greatest tower um, for Tribeca, which is also an 800 foot tall building with unbelievably spectacular views. And for me, like it just never, I am never, I'm always mesmerized by the possibilities and the view of New York City. Like I could just stand there and stare at it all day long. And so to me, that's what if I'm paying. 10 million or 12 million to just look out over the whole skyline and all the rivers just makes me like takes me to a whole other place and it, it doesn't get boring no never gets boring are you there's planes coming in there's boats going by there's lights twinkling it like it's constant it's like a it's like having a movie like out your window every day all day it's the most spectacular movie i can imagine but and, a silent film yeah amazing because you can write your own script over it it's like it's like and and i as a child of the suburbs like for me it's like i'm not looking out you know my whole life i grew up looking out a window at a tree and like that tree you know the leaves came and then the leaves grew it wasn't that exciting (laughs) like but when i look out at new york city and the skyline and the rivers and it just feels like endless possibilities so i want to talk about development and sales a little bit more um and given my experience on the investment and development side, I have some views on this, but I'm sure you guys have views as well. Developers usually have very strong opinions on uh, what buildings should look like, how they're laid out, whether or not they're qualified to actually have those opinions. Uh, so, John, which developer with whom you've worked has the worst design sense? I'm kidding. You don't have to. You don't have to answer that. Or you, you can't. Don't worry. Right? I wasn't going to answer that. So <laughs> I, I know no, the answer to no, that, but no, I'm not going to say. No that. problem. No problem. Not answering that. Uh, but more generally, do developers tend to be open to your? I mean, they hire you for yes. your suggestions. But do you find that when you provide suggestions, because these are there's a lot of money riding on these decisions. Correct. What is the reaction when they disagree with you? I think going back to my early point, it's a long term relationship that we have with these developers and they do hire us because they trust us. And I actually I love developers with strong opinions um, because it's important to to make decisions to move forward. And it's important to have a strong dialogue. Um, I actually I think one of the things that is so great about uh, going back to our platform, Douglas Element, and how Raphael and I work together and how we work with our developer clients is that it is a constant dialogue and a constant conversation about what the best solution is, given both business parameter considerations, design considerations, the ultimate customer considerations. And so I have actually... I find that the clients and the that developers that I've worked with over many years have great respect for who we are and why we're there. Um, and I love having a good debate with them. We're there all day long, just like we sell to customers. We're selling to our developer clients as well. 
you know, I have uh, experienced all day long meetings with you, which are always fun. Um, <laughs> well, Raphael, we like to make it interesting, you know, about like, <laughs> it's, that's it's, part of we're engaging. It's never not interesting. That's yeah. true about this business. Raphael, what's a common mistake that many, I mean, you're on the front lines, you uh, take buyers through apartments, and I'm sure you hear comments that they make and complaints that they have. What's a common mistake that you've seen across units that developers sometimes make? Lack of adequate closet space seems to be a big one. Um, another mistake is that a lot of developers, I think, get a little too caught up in what they like as opposed to what is saleable and marketable to a wide audience. Uh, so we always try mm. to kind of keep them reined in when it comes to that. Sometimes, you know, a, a spouse will come in and, 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 and that's the yeah. dialogue that we're always having. And that's where the relationships are important because that's what we talk about. You know, it's like, is it, is it a, prof- is it a professional opinion? Is it a personal opinion? You know, and sometimes of course, you know, they overlap because by the way, you know, the developers and they, they are, and I mean, they certainly, of course, so they do have an understanding of who the customers are. You know, it's super luxury real estate in New York city. Um, so of course they know about it. Um, so it's, I, I actually think that that's kind of one of the fun things about it. Next question is, we're going to talk about building amenities in a little bit, but separate from those, when you're designing a building, are there specific design-related features that buyers of ultra-luxury ultra condos absolutely want? And what are those? Me? Yeah, Raphael. Well, just to be clear, we don't design them. Um, we mm-hmm. just kind of opine and and you know give our opinions and and try to keep everyone in line with what we think the marketplace wants. Um, go ahead. Sorry. Again. So what are some of those, what are things that you would very strongly argue to a developer? Um, not on the amenity side, we'll talk about that in a second, but on the design side, what are things that are absolute musts? Ceiling heights um, being above, I'd say nine and a half uh, and even 10 feet clear is sort of a, a prerequisite at this point for, for, for luxury. What does um, 10, what does clear mean? Meaning that, at not not slab to slab, but with the finished ceiling, you so still the, have ten feet. The amount of space yeah. where your feet go versus if you jumped up what you touched, right. that is right. ten feet. Right. Fin- fin- what we call finished floor to finished ceiling. Right. Okay. So ceiling height. What else? Yeah. Uh, if you're able to do it, uh, a garage within the building. If you have a curb cut, uh, that's a really big deal, and, and it's important to activate that and figure out a way to use that. Um, a really robust uh, health club or gym is really important also if you have the room. That's something that's pretty much expected at this point. So in in terms of layouts, when you guys, John, when you're working with a developer to design floor plans in a layout, what would you say needs to be included? Well, for us... I mean, obviously, it, it varies depending on the size of the apartment, right? So there are certain expectations and standards that we look at, and, and actually, they're they're pretty readily um, quantified. Uh, we really look at exact standards when we look at uh, a one-bedroom apartment, a two-bedroom, a three, a four, uh, and we consider what the absolute, what the price point of that apartment would be, um, and what the, in turn, what the demands would be from the buyers, like what the expectations are. Obviously, for many of these buyers, um, you know, these homes might be, they could be second or third homes, um, but they live in a very, um, you know, their expectations are to live in a very gracious and refined way. So you have to keep in mind the proportions and the scale of the spaces, um, the actual galleries, entries, hallways, foyers, um, and how those actually lead into, um, you know, living rooms, great rooms, and, and dining rooms. And it is, you know, you do have to really think about the functionality 
of it and how we, we spend quite a bit of time uh, with layouts and actually looking at furniture layouts on those layouts to understand how the space could actually work. Um, also, the higher, uh, as you get into higher price point levels, very often those individuals come in with designers. So if they're really serious about the apartment, they're going to bring their designer in. And that designer is going to start poking holes in everything about the apartment. So we have to anticipate that so that we already have the responses that they are laid out thoughtfully. So function is very much what we consider, and also in terms of sort of the graciousness of that layout and the width of the spaces proportions and scale. Um, and certainly the principal rooms are the most important, meaning the entertaining spaces and the master bedroom and, and bathroom. So that's actually a good point. And I said to, uh, when I was working for Steve Wickoff, I said to him, which he didn't think was a good idea, but I was early on in my career. So in hindsight, it clearly wasn't a good idea. Um, based on what you just said about how people are going to come in and buy an apartment and they want to redo some of it. Because if you build an apartment bill, a condo building that has 150 units in it, it's very unli- unlikely. It's impossible that you're going to find 150 buyers that all like the same thing. So there are buyers who will come in and redo everything. So why... It's not as common as you think. When I say that someone brings in a designer or a decorator, I'm talking more in terms of more interior decor generally. Um, certainly at very high price points. I mean, we're talking, you know, 30 million, 40 million, 50 million maybe. But the thing is, one of the reasons why we spend so much time working with celebrated designers and designers who really understand the lifestyles of the customers is that so that they don't have to come in and do that. Because if they are doing that, they're sort of they're not really paying you for the value of that build out that you that the developer is spending money on and that is a big part of what we're selling so we're really trying to channel the a style that they will appreciate and that they will be able to live with and the other thing is coming in with a designer and certainly some people are going to just want to do that like for them it's like you know it's it's a fun project it's something that they enjoy that's what they do in in their homes um but for a lot of people if it's a primary home that's an enormous project and they don't want to have to come in and deal with that enormous project and the unknown of the timeline and the cost that goes into that so what we try to do is minimize that to maximize the value but what they will come in and do, of course, is work with decorators who are very much involved in their decor. So in part, uh, people who are going to buy units at this level, the $10, 20000000 million level and above, they have obviously particular tastes about what they want. And a developer, as I mentioned before, is never going to be able to cater to uh, every specific person. So, Raphael, part of your job is to know your clients well enough to know when four new luxury buildings are coming up, you have to know that for John Smith, he wants to be in the first building, just given his design sense and history. How, how does that work, and how do you do? How, how do you understand what your clients want, and then match them up with a potential building? It's really important to listen um, to your clients. Uh, you can learn a lot if you just kind of keep your mouth shut and keep your ears open. That's not just a good yeah. lesson for real estate. That's yeah. a good lesson just in life. Yeah, I agree. Um, and after you get to know them and after you've done a few transactions with them, you, you, you start to become pretty familiar with what drives them and uh, what appeals to them. And um, you've just got to keep that in mind at all times when you're talking with them or sending them stuff. Um, what you don't want to be do is what you don't want to ever be doing uh, as a broker is appear to be throwing darts at a board. Um, a lot of brokers make that mistake, um, sometimes out of desperation or out of lack of experience. And um, that's that's sort of the kiss of death when you're dealing with somebody at a high level. Because they want to see things that they want to actually look at. And if you send them 12 different apartments, they're not interested in why are they using you. 
Yeah, correct. Yeah. And and the most valuable thing to most of those people are their time, time right? right? So, and we, I will also say that we, you know, part of creating value is predicated on the notion that you understand what people value. So Raphael's point of how he listens to his customers, like we are, are always thinking about, you know, it's sort of sociology. It's like you're kind of studying who these people are, what their tastes are. Those change and evolve over time. You know, finishes that were appropriate 10 years ago are not the finishes that are appropriate today. And we're always trying to channel that and stay ahead of that, frankly. Um, and so, you know, you really have to think about who that customer is in that particular location. You know, you can put in 24 karat gold fixtures. That's obviously expensive and it's fancy and people would know it, but some people might hate it. You know, in a certain location, that's probably not the taste, right? So why would you do that? So you have to understand, and this is, again, part of a process that we have with our clients and with developers, is that you, you can't just have everything and you can't just throw every expensive thing into the apartment. You have to understand the things that are really going to matter to people um, and put the money there. Right. And there are also a lot of trade-offs. So on any yes. particular site, some of the deals that we worked on, the zoning, which is by city code, tells you what you can build, and that really drives what your floor plans are sometimes and what view corridors are and mm -hmm. how high a building can be, and that really is uh, you sometimes don't have a choice. And if when a developer is trying to put together a budget and, and figure out where, I'm gonna, where the developer is going to get the money, how much it's going to cost, there are trade-offs that you have to make, and you can't, like you said, you can't always get what you want. And that's what is very complicated about the real estate development project, and it's how a lot of developers can go wrong and get it wrong. Right. One of the other problems with finishes, especially, <clears throat> is that if you're planning the finishes today, you're not delivering them maybe for three or four years. And in general, your finishes in, a, in an individual renovation that you do in your own home or in a new development basically go to zero after eight to ten years. So by the time you're delivering it, you're four or five or six years away from basically needing to gut it again. So what would you say, in your experience in the business, what buildings have stood the test of time? What buildings today, um, either exterior architecture, the interiors, are still relevant or still in demand, even though they were built a very long time ago? I would say all the Rosario Candela pre-war buildings on Fifth Avenue on Central Park have stood the test of time, um, some on Central Park West as well. And as far as newer condominiums, you look at buildings like 15 Central Park West, um, shorter amount of time, but 150 Charles is an example of a building that has not only held up since it was conceived in 2011 or 2012, but appreciate it. Yeah, it'll, it'll continue to hold up, I think, for decades to come. And in part of part of that is thinking about a style in terms of buildings that we work on that are sort of more current generation new development is thinking about a style that isn't just necessarily specifically um, neo to a certain other time, but something that is also of today. And so it has its own, it sort of creates its own context. It doesn't go out of style. We try not to work on things that are, we we're, we're thinking about things that aren't fads, but that are timeless styles. Um, and that's a big part of what we do and, and how we direct designers um, and architects and people that we work with in collaboration with our developers. So of all the luxury buildings that are out there, whether you've worked on them or not, where would you most want to live? Well, for me, it's actually, it's, it's, it's very easy. Um, speaking of 150 Charles, um, I, I am, for me, it's, I'm a location driven person. Ultimately, I've spent 20 years living in the far West village and it's the only place in the city that I, that I 
really that I it's my place that I love to live. I wouldn't go outside of it. So um, you know, 150 Charles is a spectacular building, and um, it has literally every single amenity that you could possibly uh, desire or imagine, um, including my absolute favorite building amenity, which is the covered motor court or driveway. Um, because because it, the paparazzi that always follows you around? Well, it's to ensure that every day is a good hair day. That's actually why I love it. It is, but it is literally the, it changes the quality of your life in New York City because of the level of refinement of your leaving home and arriving home every night because you are not exposed to the elements. And that is the part that no matter how beautiful your building is, if it got onto a curb, it, it, you know, you're, 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 you're exposed, right? It's, it's, it, and by the way, though, to be, as you just said, paparazzi yes absolutely it is a big part of what people uh think about for that for for me personally not yet but um <laughs> but but i do like my hair to look good so. but that's also that's a sign of a really good execute a very well executed development project which is it changes the way that you live and you yep. Yep. love coming home at the end of the day and you right. are sad to leave in the morning yep. and the lobby smells nice and everything looks good and you just feel good there and you yeah. feel at home it's rooted in substance i mean there is it's not a superficial treatment of something it actually there is substance that improves the quality of your life and that's what people do pay for um a question of you know thinking about how you actually exceed their expectations in terms of the quality of their life is sort of always what we're looking to do um because very often we're creating new markets in in terms of price points and, and what we're doing with developers so we're always pushing that envelope but but um, that was an easy one for me. It also happens to be a very tall building. So if I could, you know, get up to one of the top floors, which where we know some people that live there, um, maybe one day some some really spectacular and successful, unbelievable people, like maybe one day. What about you, Raphael? You can't oh, say 150 Charles. I'm actually with John. Yeah, I'm not trying you to have be, to say 150 yeah, Charles. Yeah, I'm not trying to be lazy. I'll tell you why. I, I'm a West Village guy since 1986. There's no other neighborhood in Manhattan that I would ever want to live. Um, and for me, 150 Charles is the most blue chip building and location in the West Village. Interesting. I did not think that there would be yeah. consensus and, here. And by the way, we're not trying to sell anything there. <laughs> right. So we already it's not sold, like right. we're trying to plug that building. It just happens to be the truth. Right. Well, one interesting thing about Charles Street, which I worked on peripherally a little bit when I was at Wickoff, was when you guys went out to start selling the building, 91 units were sold in about 11 weeks, which yeah. is... A 14 or 15 weeks. But which yeah, is close. incredibly fast. Mm -hmm. Correct. Which makes you think that if you had slowed it down a little bit, would pricing have been improved? I personally don't think so. I've heard people say that. You know, the interesting thing to me about 150 Charles was that it was the first large-scale ground-up new development post Lehman Brothers crash, which was September 1508, right? So we were the first big building to come out of the ground, um, and nobody really knew. And to be perfectly honest, some of the equity partners on the deal felt that we were overpricing it. Um, so I, I think actually, you know, in retrospect, um, we, we maximized the value and, you know, we were in sort of a vacuum of new dev at that time. So there were a lot of people who were interested. A lot of people had, had known about the site. Uh, the site had been shelved, uh, before, uh, right after Lehman's collapse. So it was out there. Um, and people want to be in the West village, you know, for, for most ultra luxury buyers, it's West village or central park. We have to take a quick – this is the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm Zach Scheinberg live in New York with John Albino and Raphael De Niro of Douglas Elliman. 
Uh, for those of you who want to give us a call, ask any questions, one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six, and we will try to answer them while we are on the show. So, John, let's talk about pricing for a second. So, during the design process, a developer has to price the building, meaning each individual apartment, because it's required by the New York State Attorney General when you're trying to get a condo offering plan approved. Prospective buyers want to know uh, where they're going to start negotiating, and the developer needs to know what the total revenue of the building is going to be. So, how does this work? Where do you where do you even start to price a building? What do you mean negotiating? <laughs> um, but so we, we look at we price buildings the way that customers look at buildings um, and look at individual apartments. So we it's a very um, it's a very granular process. Um, it is considering all the specific qualities of an apartment that a purchaser would 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 look at in terms of the overall location, the building itself, all of the amenities and lifestyle that's part of that, um, and then the actual individual qualities of that particular apartment. And we go so far, so you're talking about light, you're talking about view, you're talking about ceiling height, you're talking about layout, all of those kinds of things. And we actually, um, very often, we do, uh, going back to sort of a more quantitative approach, we have ranking scales across, you know, as we look at different apartments and buildings uh, to understand how they sort of uh, almost like creating a score so that we can kind of understand a framework. Then that's one part. And then there's also that's kind of a little bit more of like science. And, and then you have a score of a building and you're just kind of understanding the individual apartments and obviously within the framework of what the market is and kind of comparables, uh, which is sort of a controversial word sometimes for people because, you know, very often no building is comparable to their building. Correct. And we're always and we're and, and by the way, to be fair, we're, you know, very often we're we we frankly, we sort of specialize in this of like creating new mar- creating markets, like creating price points that haven't been reached before. You know, because for reasons that are very solid, going back to substance of the product, like you create something that is different and is at a a qualitative level above uh, what has been existed before. And sure, that that should garner higher prices. So we're always trying to assess that as well um, within the framework of what I call market indicators, you know, so that you understand kind of what other things people might be looking at and you understand the prices of those um, type, you know, types of apartments. And then we also look at kind of a little bit more of um, after we've taken a more quantitative and and scientific approach we also kind of consider like hey how might someone you know sort of feel about this particular apartment relative to another apartment in the building um so it's it's very multifaceted and it's very granular and it actually it's an incredibly um uh, as you pointed out these are you know hundreds of millions if not billions of dollars and so the process of pricing the individual apartments um is something that we take very seriously and spend uh hours, days, weeks, months, months. working on to um, really fine-tune what that pricing is um, and and what's appropriate and, again, maximizing the value for our you know, developer clients. But a lot of it is, it's there can be quantitative analysis you put behind it, but a lot of it's subjective because when you have a lot of different right. factors, you ultimately have to make a decision. So, Raphael, I want to run through uh, some different features in a building and then tell me whether or not these will increase the price, decrease the price, or no change. Sure. So assuming two exactly two apartments that are exactly the same, but one's on a higher floor, does that increase the price or decrease it? It does. Increase. Increase. Because people want better views. Better views, and there's a psychological thing in New York that, you know, the closer you are to the street, the less valuable your space is or less desirable. 
Did you want to add something, John? Well, the only thing that I wanted to make a note, which is a very, which is unusual, but sometimes you might have a situation where a lower floor has a little bit of a different perspective because of height. You know, you might be over the view in a way. Mm-hmm. So it's something, you know, but yeah. by and large, what Raphael is saying is absolutely right. yeah, correct. All other things being equal. Yeah. So a townhouse apartment rather than an apartment building. A townhouse apartment? Or a townhouse. A townhouse that has the exact same layout. Um, it's obviously different, but approximately the same square feet, it's approximately the same amenities, or a similar apartment in, in an apartment building. An apartment building, typically, if it's over you know, either a simplex, meaning one floor, or duplex, meaning two, uh, is usually more valuable on a square foot basis than a townhouse, which is spread out over three to five stories. Is it because people just don't want to go up and down steps? Correct. There's a discount for vertical living generally, and you generally don't have views, and you usually don't have um, any amenities associated with it unless it's a masonette that's part of a larger development. Right. Okay. Uh, duplex instead of a single floor? Uh, historically, single floors trade um, with better velocity and at higher dollar per foot. What about floor-to-ceiling windows, which give you better views but probably have cost you more for, with your utility bill? Split. Um, some people really like them. Other people feel like it's living in a fishbowl. But if you're on a high floor, you, people probably don't, don't see it. It depends. You know, serious art collectors mm-hmm. aren't always big on floor-to-ceiling windows. They have to put special tints and and film on the windows to protect the artwork and furniture and floors it it really depends so we already talked about parking garage in the building that increases the prices yes i think so yeah city view or water view that's an that's an interesting question i mean i i I think that foreigners people go for what foreigners will take a city view a big city view in most cases there are obviously exceptions Domestic but, people, I think, are more interested in park or water. Right. I I also think that it's um it, it's a lot of personal preference. I think. I mean, it, it's not. There's not necessarily like, oh, well, just because it had that, it would be you know more um you know a spectacular, unbelievable city view. By the way, sometimes uh, you know you can be very fortunate and you get them together. Right. You know, like fifty six like, hundred. Yeah. Right. One of Murray. Yeah. Like you get um actually the um the eleventh the new uh, mm-hmm. mass you know that spectacular project in West Chelsea. Um, you know, you get River and um city views. Outdoor space. So mm-hmm. outdoor space is interesting in New York because um. Our weather is not great for eight months out of the year, um, so it doesn't get used that much, and there is not as big of a premium placed on outdoor space as one might think. Um, that being said, I've noticed, at least anecdotally over the last 15 years, that L.A. and California-based customers of mine tend to want outdoor space. And by the way, the thing, the, what's spectacular? amazing in LA, of course, is kind of that sort of indoor-outdoor living experience. Um, and actually speaking, you know, the addition property that has uh, 20 residential condos with John Pawson that we are working on now with Wake Off, um, is all about kind of indoor-outdoor living so that it's just like seamless and people are like, that's absolutely how people want to live there um, because you're you're connected to the outdoors even when you're inside. What about a celebrity used to live there? Does anyone care? Not really. It's got to be someone who's such an important historical figure. John Lennon. Yeah, that's meaningful to some people. Rudy Giuliani. (laughs) (laughs) But by the way, I will say that that it's an... 
obviously there's you know sometimes with new developments you see that someone says oh so and so was looking at the you know looking at the building or there and whatever um and going back to the point we talked about pr it can create some buzz and make it interesting. I mean, probably the most successful, you know, building for that would have been 443 Greenwich yeah. in terms of talking about, you know, a lot of international um, celebrity buyers. Um, and also going back to the paparazzi, they have a truly in uh, covered parking with a driveway and that goes into the building and it's completely um, paparazzi proof. Thank you very much. We are unfortunately out of time. That's the show for this week. Thanks for listening. I'm Zach Scheinberg. Keep it real. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 